Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Entrepreneurs in Small Rooms Drinking Coffee. I'm your host, Rob Kennedy, and we're here with Kirk of Wave. How's it going, Kirk? Very well. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks for being here. So uh, in case anybody doesn't know, why don't you tell everybody, everybody what Wave is all about? Sure. So we build small business tools uh, for micro small businesses. We define that as zero to nine employees. Most people aren't aware that 96% of all businesses in North America are in that size. 50 to 60% of them use nothing. And our goal is to give them a tool that can help them run their business more effectively. So as a, as a small business owner, yeah. I'd turn to Wave and I'd be like, shit, I need like, what, payroll? I need like... Yeah, so usually they come in, they need some way of controlling their books to understand how they're doing. Uh, in terms of, you know, you could broadly define that as, as accounting, but it's more about, um, you know, how am I doing this month versus last month at a very high level? How can I be ready for tax season? If you ever see a typical small business owner during those two months around March, April, there's a fear in the white of their eyes because they know that they've kept everything in a shoebox or mm -hmm. there's receipts lying around and they know they've got two weeks of absolute hell. Uh, coming up, we're trying to, to solve that for them, as well as invoicing to help them get them get them paid faster, payments. Um, typically, a small business owner, if they accept credit cards, will get paid 12 days faster than if they don't. Uh, and so we offer that within our system, et cetera. So like the, what, what do you, the key inflection point when they're like, oh shit, shoebox to I need something right. is usually around tax time. So is that your busy time when everyone's like, like, that's when all you get a ton of new users? Or? Yeah, so we typically sign up about 40 to 50,000 users a month. Mm -hmm. And you're right that Q1 for us. So it's both, um, I made a new year's resolution to keep better control of my books. So January is crazy. Right. And then, uh, yeah, February, March into April mm -hmm. around tax. Um, those are our busiest months for sure. Now, you, we sort of talked about this before the show. You started around 2009. Correct. And it was you and one co-founder? Yep. James Lockery, yeah. And at the time, you guys were called Wave Accounting, if memory serves. Yeah? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So the idea at the time was what? What was the impetus for you guys to say, shit, we need to build this? Well, so it was always that we were going to do uh, accounting and invoicing for sure. Mm -hmm. um, we named ourselves Wave Accounting because at the time, you might remember, Google had come out with this product called Wave. Um, oh, yeah, the collaboration thing that yeah, exploded. Yeah, they were trying yeah. to sort of change email communication and collaboration. Yeah. And uh, we actually thought that, that there were some really, really interesting aspects of what they were trying to build. Mm -hmm. And we thought that um, there might actually be an opportunity to embed some of those workflows into uh, back office tools. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the life cycle of an invoice, as an example, uh, going out to your customer, they might have questions about it, um, or actually it could start ahead of that. You want to send them an estimate. They come back and confirm or deny or change the estimate. Uh, you then do the work. You then turn it into an invoice, all that kind of stuff you actually could see that being a wave uh, in terms of how Google defined it in terms of the collaboration back and forth. Mm -hmm. so, um, so you were inspired by that? We were. Really? Yeah. And, and that's where the name sort of... Correct. No way. That's yeah. really cool. I didn't Both know. from the standpoint of, uh, you know, it was, it was twofold. One is, you know, what they were doing and, and, uh, and surrounding ourselves around that and also Listen, we're, we were both surfers and loved the ocean and all that kind of stuff, so it was kind of natural and right. we felt 
that it was a, a good fit. And you've outlasted Google, which is amazing <laughs> on the product. <laughs> so uh, when you when you guys started, what were you doing at the time? Were you surfing and did you have a job or did you like? What oh you yeah, well both of us are are sort of later stage entrepreneurs. So mm -hmm. we both had kids. Uh, James had three. I had two with another one on the way. So mm -hmm. so no, unfortunately we weren't living like a beach life. But you had your regular gigs. We had regular jobs, yes. And then you're like, I am going to. I know I have a mortgage and children. Right. Because this is not the narrative, right? You're like, no, right. you have to be 20. You have Correct. to like eat ramen for some stupid reason. And yes. Well, not even a stupid reason. I think when I meet young entrepreneurs, I'm like, go for it now because yeah. it only gets harder. Yeah. From the standpoint of, uh, you know, you got to convince your wife or your husband <laughs> yeah. or your partner or like whatever. Yeah. Um, and your kids. <laughs> and, and your kids. You got to tell them. Uh, <laughs> Listen. You know. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, it, it, it certainly gets tougher as you get older to do it. Um, we, I had a situation where I could turn my full-time job into a consulting job for six to nine months so that I knew I had some income coming in while we started it. Uh, James stayed at his job for a while yeah. and made sure that there was you know clear separation between his two worlds. Um, and that's how we got it off the I ground. Get it, I get it. That, like, so for those who are young or don't remember, right. 2009, not the easiest time to start any kind of business at all. Um, you guys, that was like the explosion. The Americans were exploding. Recession. Yeah. You know, depression. I don't, I don't know why. Like, I don't remember <laughs> it. I mean, one of the things that I'll tell you is that I have a hard time remembering a lot of the things that happened then <laughs> because there's just been so much that's happened over the last, you know, five and a half years. But it didn't feel unnatural to start it at that time. Yeah, the, we didn't. We weren't looking around, going, "Oh, the macroeconomic environment." Well, Canada was suggest. actually okay. Yeah, I actually. mean, there wasn't there but, wasn't a lot of uh, reverberation in our own personal lives or what we were seeing around us. But what's interesting, I still am like I'm stuck on the fact that you got you guys were like. There's a couple things. One is like you, you kind of go 100%. You were consulting. James was sort of doing mm -hmm. it on the side, which is sort of not the narrative. The second thing is you had kids, mm -hmm. not the narrative. Mm -hmm. um, did that bother you in the slightest? Did you ha did it matter that it, you know, you th you think there's a problem there, but this wasn't like a beam of light coming down from heaven saying, right. you, thou shalt build a wave, I'm assuming. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, How do you get to the point where like this, this is totally worth it? Yeah, so I think, first of all, uh, you know, I can only talk from my own personal situation was, you know, I'd had a conversation with my wife for a long time saying I wasn't really happy. I wasn't fulfilled doing what we were, what I was doing at the time. And I really wanted to take a shot. And, you know, we had a, we had lucked into a nice house in Toronto that was a couple of apartments and we turned it into a house and got lucky with the location and, and the value of it and stuff like that. And I sort of said to my wife, like, I'd much rather live in a smaller house, drive a, you know, not fancy car and be happy. And luckily she sort of bought into that. And, and so I sort of gave myself and, and she agreed, you know, 12 months to see if we could make this work and set up the consulting agreement so that we could have, um, you know, some, some stability and just went for it. And so how long did it take you, I don't want to spend too much time on those early yeah. days, but how, much, how long did it take you to like get a product that people were like paying you for? Right, so um, we built an alpha product in, again, my memory is like dodgy. <laughs> um, 
I want to say three to four months. Okay. And um, and had sort of fifteen to twenty customers who were using it, not paying. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was going into sort of two thousand ten. And then we sort of did a deeper dive into the market. We saw what Mint was doing on the personal finance side. We saw where bank connectivity was going with with tools like Yodely and others. And we really, we sat in March of 2010. We were actually on vacation together as two families with our kids and stuff. And we, we sort of looked at the market and said, we think that there's an opportunity to go free. And that was a little bit different than how we were thinking. We were typically thinking, you know, the same $14, $19 a month or whatever typical SaaS. And again, really heavily influenced by what we saw with Mint um, and where we thought small business software was going. Mm-hmm. You know, it was early days of people starting to use Gmail for their email for work instead of having to get an Outlook server and all that kind of stuff. So. Evernote was starting to come along, Dropbox and others. And so we really thought that there was going to be a movement um, in the small business space that they were acting like consumers, they were bringing consumer-like technology into their small business and that there was an opportunity to disrupt in that space, um, both with the product and with the business model. Mm-hmm. And so we, we then got really serious about the business. We raised funds in the fall of 2010 and we had our um, our first real product out right at the end of 2010, beginning of 2011. So there's a lot of really interesting things you said in there. So to unpack it a bit, one was, um, did you, to go free, that implies, like that's a user acquisition strategy, if nothing mm-hmm. else, right? Like mm-hmm. I think that, that will definitely get you a lot of people, some yep. good, some bad. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Did you have a monetization strategy in mind at the time, or did you say we don't know yet, but we're just gonna like that's a especially for a Canadian company, yeah, it's a weird thing to do. Yeah. So our big our big thought process was it was really interesting what Mint was doing. They had all this data in their cloud, and they were beginning to get into showing offers and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. against the data. Mm-hmm. So we thought that was really interesting. More importantly, we thought. Small business, in our opinion, was even more ripe for this model than personal finance because, first of all, most importantly, small business owners have an incentive and a requirement to keep their books up to date versus in the personal world, it's kind of like if if my experience and those around me who have used Mint is any example, it's you get really excited at the beginning, you connect <laughs> everything, you categorize everything. It gets better about categorization. It that's does. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, and then you see stuff and you're like, oh wow, I had no idea I spent this much money at Starbucks and right. all this kind of stuff. And then you're like, well, that's fine. You know, I, yeah. I I can generally keep abreast of my 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 personal finance by looking at my bank balance by looking at my mortgage by it's looking like a at my mortgage. test but that's kind of all that's, you get out of it right and you feel guilty and you never want to look at it again exactly kind of thing yeah. exactly and so whereas with small business <laughs> yeah, they've got a, a compliance reason <laughs> right. reason let alone a desire to see how they're doing mm-hmm. and so we thought that that was interesting and would increase usage over time versus impersonal and then the second uh, reason was because we thought through the process of having their books um, creating trust with the business owner, that there'd be an opportunity to get into other products like payroll, like payments, 
like lending, like bill pay, uh, others, and that's that's where we've gone with it. How, how do you um, how do you go from like so there is a target market and then yeah. there is a community of people. The target market was small business owners. Yeah, that's that's almost like saying the target market is consumers. Yeah, it's it's slightly more specific, but yeah. like finding them and finding them and activating them that's freaking hard because yeah. there's no like i go here to a google group yeah. and i say you should use wave yeah that how do you how do you tackle that market yeah um so rob morin who's our our vp of marketing and been with us since the beginning just we we worked right from the get-go at sort of saying let's be a different kind of tool for small business owners let's talk a different language to them Let's be very approachable. Let's be the the opposite side of QuickBooks, right? Mm -hmm. um, where you know the real drivers of QuickBooks usage is accountants and bookkeepers, not the small business owners. Right, right. And we really wanted to go after the small business owners. So we're very fo focused in our message. We were we had a long game as it relates to the way that we were doing SEO, mm -hmm. right? So we weren't we weren't taking shortcuts we were doing the right things as it relates to the way that we were building our site the content that we were creating all that kind of stuff and we just knew that it would take us a bit of time mm -hmm. um, and then this is a great example of where luck plays into this in a big big way where very early um, in 2011 the Google Chrome store comes out and Google was really promoting it um, and we made an integration in two hours and it costs us five dollars to list <laughs> and I think now we're probably up to somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 500,000 installs from the Google Chrome store and what did the app do it, it, uh, it was a bookmark okay that sent you to the login page I see <laughs> really that's that's all the the integration was right um, and, uh, and what was the valid prop to the user it was like discovery really they're That's, like manage your life, like your business life. It was it, okay. it was it was like all that app. it was images in rotation that would talk about Wave instead of a homepage, and then it would just send you to the to the registration page. That's, That's all it was. Amazing. Um, and at the time, we were getting we were getting you know the typical startup. We were getting an email every time somebody signed up for Wave. Yeah. And so you know we were getting I don't know if I rewinded to. Let's say March of 2011, we were getting 50, 60 signups a day or something like that. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I woke up one morning on a Saturday, went downstairs. My kids were young, so I was up early, opened up my laptop, and there's just reams and reams of signup emails. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and so we realized that the editor of the Google Chrome store had posted us as That's like, as like right at the beginning, right <laughs> at the <awesome>. top, massive. <laughs> Uh, promotion and that lasted for you know a couple of years really and a lot of the reason why we got our series a because we were now signing up you know 300 users a day all through organic channels a lot of it driven through chrome that's amazing was because of that luck of that editor you know picking us that that helped happen to me in end loop we we had the editors pick and even impressed when we were there like the editors pick generated a huge weird yes it's weird like you know pretty like you have to wine and dine almost the the person who's choosing because we actually sudden... never knew him yeah or yeah, her yeah like yeah. we never met them That's we awesome. never uh and the danger there is always like when that gravy train ends right yeah, it's fickle it's, suddenly it's gonna but they were very consistent actually with us for a long time so how do you like just taking a quick step back you, you're 
2010, like startups are cool now uh -huh. and they're well-established patterns. Yeah. Uh, at the time, it wasn't quite that the case. Yeah. Um, that was sort of um, amorphous and, and growing. Uh, you go to an investor and you're like, dude, we've got this product, it's awesome, we're targeting small businesses, Canadian dudes and probably American dudes. You're, you're like, hey, you should totally invest in us. We're gonna go free, we need to acquire users. How do you convince, what kind of investment was it? Was it like a convertible debt sort of thing? Like our angel or friends and family? Like how did you start yeah, so, that path? So you're 100% right. Uh, you know, 2010 for a non-proven technology company, you know, founders who hadn't done it before, it's a very difficult, you know, process to raise money. Um, I think that's changed a lot. Thank, mm -hmm. Thanks to a lot of the entrepreneurs who have done really well coming back into the ecosystem and making it sexy and m doing their own investments. Um, but at the time, there were there were only a few examples of you know successful tech companies in Toronto. Um, FreshBooks has done you know a great job for a long period of time. Um, you know, it's hard to point to many others in 2010 in Toronto who were making it big. Yeah. Um, so, like, the, the fascinating story, and I'll make it short, is I'm walking down the street, uh, walking back from dropping my kids off at school, and one of my neighbors says, why am I seeing you around more often, dropping your kids off at school and stuff? And I said, well, because I'm working from home, I've, I've quit my job, and I'm, I'm starting a startup with a friend of mine and and he said what's it about and I, so I told him and he had had very like a few small businesses in the past and so it resonated with him and he's like well I, I think I might want to write a check for that and I might have other friends who want to write a check for that hmm. and out of that chance encounter and conversation came probably $600,000 of original seed money. How do you know how much, I mean, acquiring that volume of users, uh -huh. you, that takes a lot of marketing and effort. Uh -huh. How do you know how much to raise? Like, do you just keep saying yes until the, they stop signing checks? Well, basically. Or? Okay. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, I, I've noticed that, like, talking to, after doing this show for a while and just talking to entrepreneurs, I'm like, how do you know when your business is done? Like, when right. you stop? And the answer is, usually nobody will pay me to do this anymore. Not right. like I've come to some intellectual conclusion right. that this is the wrong thing to do. Yeah. So you, you raised your first round, uh -huh. um, but that was like, a, what do you call that? A friends and family seed kind of thing? We had raised a friends and family sort of 125K in the summer, okay. and then we raised a, what we called a sort of seed, which was a million five but it was over a long period of time of mm. accepting anybody who would give us money. Mm -hmm. And near the end of it, when we had gotten some traction, getting Omers to write a $500,000 check to round out the round. So at that point it became 1.5 million. We lumped everybody together because FedDev was just coming out. And so they gave us a interest-free, non-dilutive sort of $750,000 as well. Mm -hmm. So through that process of banging on hundreds of doors, uh, we ended up with sort of 2.2 million. Is, um, and for those who are not Canadian, that's a lot of money in Canada. Like you don't kind of raise that kind of money. In 2010 especially. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's like $100 million in 2015 right. dollars. Right. Right. Um, but how do you, so was that sort of convertible? I mean, not the FedDev stuff, but the- No, we had was, set a price on it. You set a price, okay. Yeah. Um, I wasn't smart enough to be honest to to do convertible. I didn't know what that whole <laughs> that was kind of new too ish yeah. at the time. Yeah. And and even that's not like cool anymore. It's like safe or I don't know what people right. do. Right. I don't. Me neither. Um, and then 
you, you kind of went through that money to, you got a whole bunch of users, a whole mm -hmm. bunch of users. Mm -hmm. um, when, you, when you get them on your platform, especially when they're coming through the Chrome store or whatever, how do you, I guess at that point you're like, okay, we need to show our value proposition quickly and you're learning this works, this doesn't. Um, what did you, did you do anything terribly right or terribly wrong during that period to kind of say, oh shit, we did this and this lost like half the users. We shouldn't, uh, not that dramatic, but like what did you learn during that period? Um, so looking back on it, I, I think, you know, the, the places where we made fundamental mistakes mm -hmm. were numerous. Um, and some of them were, as an example, um, we focused on top line uh, signups more than understanding conversion funnels and why people were churning through the process. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, that wasn't necessarily a bad thing for us because, you know, once we knew we were on the VC train, you're either on that train or you're not on that train and there's kind of no in between, right? Mm -hmm. Once you're on that train, there are expectations about what you need to do, especially if you go free and so you know monetization is down the line, um, you, you know you need to keep raising money. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've had a conversation with, with a bunch of uh, really great Toronto CEOs and, you know, we've talked about the fact that if you're going to raise money at any substantial levels, you need one metric that makes your company special. Okay. One metric that sort of makes, makes VCs go like, holy fuck, how, how do you do that? Or, mm. um, wow, that that's separates you from the 500 other meetings I've had over the last three months. Mm -hmm. And for us, that was always how on earth, you know, at the B, when we were raising our B, how are you how are you signing up 850 businesses a day all through organic channels? I see. And they, they hadn't seen that before. They hadn't they hadn't they couldn't wrap their head around it. I was just speaking with somebody who when I told them now it's like 1500 a day, they were like, I don't even believe you. I've, <laughs> I've never seen a, a company going after small business, which are really hard to attract, being able to do that. And so having that one metric uh, always made it much, much easier. So in retrospect, in some ways it was the right decision, in some ways it was the wrong decision. I think the biggest mistake we made was we went too broad with the product too fast, mm -hmm. where any one vertical uh, of the product was not special enough. And so, you know, you learn How did that. you learn that? You learn like that what lesson. was the thing that made you go, oh? Well, I think one of the things, and, and this is a really, I think, really great lesson for for me and for others is I should have trusted my gut all the way along. I should have trusted my gut. Was I it knew advice that was telling you like uh, your 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 team or external people were like no 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 you got to do these three things or customers were telling you something like the, what's the, the what was the conflict? The difficulty is that um, listen uh, like as a startup VC backed raising significant money thinking about what the next round look needs to look like, etc. You have so many different forces pulling you in different directions. Um, and so like it's not it's not outside people, it's not inside people, it's not it's it's inexperience and um, and just a ton of, of factors pulling you in different directions. And I think the the lesson for me through that process was I, 
I knew in my gut it wasn't good enough. Hmm. And and so did James. And we got pulled in different directions. And that's that's just that's our fault. But I mean, you're building sort of a newish product in a market that hasn't experienced it before. Nobody actually knows. And I mean, I mean, your gut probably, I mean, you more than anyone else because you're absorbing it all. You're, I think no matter what company you're building, you're going to get that conflicting advice from every direction, For including sure. your customers. So it's hard to... Listen, all, like everything is easy to look back yeah, on and, yeah. and you know, you're so much smarter through the process. But, but I knew. Yeah. Like that's, that's all I can say about it is, is I knew. And, uh, and we didn't action on it in the right way early enough. Do you think that's a really, really interesting point with the point you made before about like finding that metric and that says that proves that, look, look, we're not crazy. This mm -hmm. is proof that we're going in the right direction. Is that true for companies when they're raising their second or third round? But when you're in the early days, you're like, I have it like it's a compelling vision and no more or like. Yeah, I think it, it uh, in a lot of ways, it depends on who you are and what space you're going after. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're a if you're a. Um, seasoned tech entrepreneur you just show up and get the money right of course. um if you're if you've got a remarkable new idea mm -hmm. sometimes that'll take take it um but otherwise uh, you know i see more and more now entrepreneurs having to prove traction even in a way before the seed round yeah, yeah. because it's so much easier in today's world as it relates to the pace of technology development the ability to you know, rapidly iterate and do MVPs and, and get data about whether or not you're on to something or not, mm -hmm. that the expectation is, why are you showing up to ask for my money without some proof points mm -hmm. that your idea is working, et cetera? I think that's different than it was. And if you look at who's getting funded on the Series A and the numbers that are required, yeah. right? It the more money in the ecosystem, but also more expectations than there were in 2010 about what's what's real in the business. How is that influencing you? So you you've you've got you've I think you found what you what you do really well because uh -huh. you've got a ton of customers, uh -huh. um, and you're going through rounds of funding. You're up to Series D, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So we did a C, yeah, or C. Okay, yeah. so like, what? How how do you know? Like, I mean, once to your like your your point before was once you're on the train, you're on the train. Mm -hmm. um, how, how do you go through each round and like what was the thing you needed to do to get your B and then your C right. and then how do you know that okay now it's time to get a D like how do you when do you say okay I think uh, there's so many factors that go into that um, one is you know market dynamics and and you know are people clamoring to get in and therefore you're going to open it up because it it makes sense at a at a proposed valuation and all that kind of stuff um, Two is I, I think at this stage, you know the the usage, the the revenue, all of those kinds of real statistics. It's no it, it, you could summarize as it, it as saying the further you go, obviously into the rounds, the less it becomes just about the vision and your your ability to sell and their trust in you and all that kind of stuff, and it comes much more into hard data about what are they seeing in the business? Do they believe the model going forward? Mm -hmm. um, do you legitimately have an opportunity to, you know, win in your space? Um, 
you know, more and more of the firms are really embracing that concept that they want the, the fund return from one or two of the portfolio companies, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when you get up into the C and D round, et cetera, I think it becomes, you know, are you that breakout company? Yeah, yeah. And so those are obviously very different statistics than what are your sign-up numbers? Right. Do you, are you, how much of your time is spent now? Because as you bring on more investors mm -hmm. and like at later stages, more sophisticated, expecting, you know, mm -hmm. an IPO soon or get bought by somebody or whatever, um, how much of your time is managing investors? How much of your time is like, you know, making the company go and... Yeah, I think it depends on, you know, you obviously go in peaks and valleys on that front okay. around board meeting time or around uh, investing time, um, that kind of stuff. But I don't know if I gave you a percentage, what would it be? Um, 10, 15, 20 percent, maybe. OK. And yeah. are, do they all kind of get along in your particular case or is there? Yeah, we've got some great investors in the company. Um, Listen, every company has its own challenges and there's all sorts mm -hmm. of dynamics at play at any given time, but but generally, you know, we've got great investors who are who who are smart, they get the space, they like each other, um, they like us, and so there's generally pretty good harmony. Do you find like in the early days or even the later days, you want it's it's like a dating exercise. You don't just want somebody to throw a bunch of money at you. You want people who get what you're doing. Yeah. And understand the space like that does that matter a hundred percent yeah yeah I think the you know you can read about it on a blog post and and it you know take good money not just money uh, I think in the early stages I would have taken any money yeah, uh, yeah like to be honest yeah and we've seen some of the fun shareholder dynamics that come out down the road from people who are not sophisticated about what this process is going to look like, how the shareholders agreement is going to change through the process, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that was painful and cumbersome and a total pain in the ass. <laughs> um, I think as, as any company that goes through its ups and downs, when you're in one of the down phases, that's when you see what these partners are really like. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's, that's when you that's when you see the value of having really great investors. Hmm. How do you is there a weird like as you go through the rounds like do the investors beget other investors cuz they all now like as you go through the rounds they're they want their investment to succeed. So mm -hmm. does that help getting the next round you're like the investors are like no 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 friend at Sequoia or whatever I'm yeah. making it up. Yeah, you need to come in because they're also motivated in keeping sure. business Absolutely. going too. Absolutely. So you get, you're, you're assembling a team, both a product team and an investment team that actually yep. pushes business forward. And I think one of the one of the things that has been one of the best parts of having really good U.S. investors is um, when our team members. So let's say Ash, our our head of engineering, or Moni, our head of product. Um, when they've got questions or when they're evaluating a piece of technology or that kind of stuff, um, you know, this just happened with Ash and some of the, the tech decisions he's making where <clears throat> our investors have put him in touch with some of the, the best people in the valley at some of the, you know, the hottest tech companies um, to really give him a sounding board for, 
um, you know, some of his thought processes or the technology he's looking at, etc. And that's invaluable for them and for the company. When you, at what point did you take on American Investors? Was that like early a on? A-Round. A-Round. Yeah. Was that necessary? Like, I mean, did you, did you, is it like I need the money and only from the States can I get that volume or size of money? Or was it like I need, I need it because I want some like outside money or like did just, yeah, so we were, we were, as I mentioned before, we were lucky enough to get Omers into our seed round, mm -hmm. and they've been phenomenal for us. And mm -hmm. having a local investor uh, is hugely valuable because you can imagine that our U.S. guys, you know, ha give us no real help as it relates to, um, you know, recruiting great people or uh, understanding um, some of the, the tax requirements and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And so Omers has been phenomenal for us. And you know you can see it in the in the um, type of portfolio companies that they have that uh, they're a great investor to have on our side. Having said that, when we were going into the A, we we had good, great conversations and the B with Canadian investors, and they were great. Um, we just we saw the value of bringing in you know a valley presence into the company. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's fair to say that they see so many companies that their ability to, um, you know, give us trending data. So as an example, like what is a good conversion from sign up into MAU in our type of software? What should we be looking at as it relates to mobile conversions or those kinds of things which are hugely valuable? when you're forecasting the business or you're thinking about whether or not the team's performance is good or bad in, in terms of funnel conversions or that kind of stuff, having that data is hugely valuable. Mm. And let alone connections and that kind of stuff. Mm. For those reasons, I think really good Valley investors are you know, a huge net positive. So it was a strategic decision as much as anything else yep. to do that. Are you... Um was there like you're interesting in Toronto specifically for those who don't know because not only are you Canadian but you chose to put your company on the east side of town which right. is where we both live yeah. uh, where the hip you know startup yeah. stuff without being too derisive is on the west side of town yeah. um, it's an interesting metaphor did, did when you got your investors were they like I like your little Canadian company, right? Pat, pat, pat. Right. I don't think they actually say that, but they're yeah. like, you should come to America, come right. to New York, come to San Francisco. Did they say that to you ever? Any of your American investors? I think or it they care. I think it happens far less than it did, you know, five, ten years ago. Um, it's not to suggest that they're not, um, you know, still a little bit naturally biased, hmm. um, but. You know, I think we can we can certainly thank our friends, you know, Toby and Harley and those guys at Shopify for proving the model. Yeah. And uh, you know, Ryan at Hootsuite, and you know, these kinds of companies are definitely changing the mindset about what is possible. Right. Um, I think we're known to have you know great engineering talent. Uh, we're known to have you know, be more cost effective mm -hmm. and that there's far less of a, of a, an employee mercenary culture of, I'm just going to go over here cause they've got a nicer ping pong table or my options are, are, um, going to be more valuable over there and constantly moving around Yeah, and that loyalty and that, um, you know, coupled with incredible, uh, talent and smarts, especially around the engineering side, I think, 
again, has helped change the mindset about what's possible in Canada. That's cool. So you're, as we close out the show, uh, when, when for entrepreneurs who are starting today who are thinking, should I go down? Because you're well down, like you're one of the few who've gone like quite far down the venture capital path in Canada. Uh-huh. Um, how, how, what, what would be your advice like the in the states, it's like you obviously you, you need to pitch and go down the VC path. It just seems like you gotta. There's no choice. How do you make that decision with your business if it's right for you? Yeah. So I've only known one way, and that yeah. is to to go this route. But um, I I think listen, if you're chasing like a really really big market, you're trying to you know, disrupt with a different type of business model and that kind of stuff. I mean, it was just obvious to us. We weren't going to fund it. Our, we couldn't fund it ourselves. Right. And <clears throat> and we would lose to bigger players who could go faster if we weren't building uh, and going after the market quick enough. You know, I. Uh, but there are tremendous dangers in going down this road, right? I mean, you lose a lot of control. Um, how does that manifest itself? I know I'm not supposed to ask you this question because the show's over, but how, meaning what? You, I need. We should build a, this thing, the thing, no, and they're like, no, 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 build that thing. No, it's it's not that severe. I mean, we've never had a vote at the board level, <laughs> and I've never been outvoted or any of that kind of stuff. It's just, it's just, you know, as I said, you're on a set of train tracks. There are clear guidelines and expectations about what being on those train tracks looks like and you can't just pick up your train and take it off the track got it right like when you go down the road you're down the road right and and down the road has a a a type of playbook and a and an expectation and all those kinds of things and you can't you can't change that you can't suddenly say to yourself like oh i just want to be a lifestyle business and (laughs) like those days are gone right (laughs) and so you know my advice to entrepreneurs is like if there is another road, if you can bootstrap it, if you can drive it through revenue, growth, etc., then try it. And I mean, you're going to have more control, you're going to have you're going to be able to make decisions, you're going to be able to you know, make certain actions on whether or not you want to scale or not based on your gut and feel. Um, why not try it? And, and if, you, if you find through that process, you know what, it's scaling really rapidly, there is a big business here, you can always raise funds at that time mm. versus getting on the train too early or thinking that, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of good talk out there about, you know, raising money like is not a moment to celebrate, right? It, all it's doing is diluting you and giving you the fuel to do great things. Mm-hmm. That's what you need to celebrate, not the Good concept cash. of, I just closed a Series A with a great investor. Like at the end of the day, that feels good for about you know, an hour. Yeah. And it's the beginning of the journey, and yeah. now the expectations are different, the return on capital required is different, the, um, the people around the table are different, the pressures you're gonna be under are gonna be different, all that kind of stuff, and just know it go into it eyes wide open about what that means that's awesome well i could keep talking to you for eight hours but we got to stop uh this was entrepreneurs in small rooms drinking coffee i'm rob kennedy and we had kirk from wave and if people want to check you out aside from installing the google chrome extension they can go to yes 
Waveapps.com. Waveapps.com. Check it out. Great product and great people. You should also go work there. (laughs) Uh, Thanks to the working group for hosting us. Thanks to Nick Kuhn for producing the show. And we'll see you next week for another fantastic episode. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.